Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 47, ADSB Options for Sonics Pilots. So the deadline to have ADSB out, installed in your airplane and working, is just a little over a year away, and it's time to really start thinking about getting serious about installing. We'll go over the options that Sonics pilots may want to consider and try to sort out some of the best units available for our particular mission, and try to find ones that keep the price kind of where we're used to seeing things. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me once again are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis, Gary Motley. John is just recently back from his Antarctica trip, and uh, John, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. Oh, thanks. I'm uh, I'm happy to be back. It's just as cold here now as it was when I was in Antarctica. Yeah, that's bad when you you know you leave the Great White South and uh, you come home and it's like just as miserable. That's that's a little demoralizing, right there. I'm not saying it's miserable. It's just cold. <laughs> <clears throat> I am. Uh, I work for uh, the a company that is the prime contractor that uh, does all the logistical support for the National Science Foundation for the Antarctic continent, and we have a, a station, McMurdo Station, um, on the Ross Ice Shelf that uh, we do all that kind of support. And I had the opportunity this year to go down and support some of the software that I developed as we rolled it out for the, the season. And the Austral summer just started in October. And so I was able to get down there, um, see what uh, what happens with all the, the issues that are, uh, um, we have uh, internet, you know, techno- technology, personnel issues. As we, um, you basically have to fly down through New Zealand, and then we come in on a uh, C-17 cargo plane and land on the sea ice and get picked up in very weird, uh, you know, snow kind of vehicles that are have big balloon tires, like Gary's new uh, his new Zenith. Uh, basically, spent three weeks and I'm back. So that's it in a nutshell. All right, so. What was the, uh, I guess, what was the highlight of your non-work time there? Well, they, they have a, a, a pretty good morale program. Um, of course, it's 24-7 sunshine. Uh, we're, we were at 77 degrees south, uh, so below the Antarctic Circle. Um, at that time of year, uh, it never got dark. And so you get off work, have dinner, and then you go do a hike or a uh, a tour of something, and, and I think the 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 tour that I got a uh, chance to go on is the pressure ridges on the sea ice, where the the different glaciers are. Uh, they come in onto the sea ice and push up a, a large ridge, and that's where the seals pop through and give birth. And it's the birthing season, so we were able to to see you know half a dozen uh, Waddell seals, which are the size of a, a normal Holstein cow. Um, up on the ice, giving birth, and and, uh, and you know they don't even care about you being there because they have no predators. Hmm. Well, that sounds like a pretty interesting deal. And this was part of a, a organized group, a kind of an excursion. 
Yeah, because of the uh, Antarctic uh, Treaty, it's very well controlled on on dealing with any wildlife. And so it was a guided uh, tour with a scientist, a small group of about 10 people. It took about two hours, walked a couple of miles out on the sea ice in our full, uh, we call it ECW, the extreme cold weather gear. Because it was about 30 below zero at the time. So, um, but it, you know, that gear is good and kept us, uh, kept us safe and pretty fascinating. So you felt like you could have spent some time out there on the ice in that, uh, red suit that you had. Yeah. The, uh, we call it big red and the bunny boots. I think it would have been, I never got cold except for when you have to take your hand out of your glove to uh, take a picture. And then you got to be quick because your cell phone's going to freeze up in about 30 seconds. So uh, a little planning when you want to take a picture. Yeah. Did you get to keep any of that kind of stuff or is that just reusable stuff? Oh, no, that's, uh, that's just issued, just government issued. And then you have to return it when you uh, come off the ice. You can buy that big red uh, jacket that I was wearing. Um, it's a Canadian goose jacket, expedition yeah. grade. Uh, they're, um, they're available online for $1,200. Whoa. Uh, extremely good jacket. It's just, it felt like a big astronaut puff. Was it pretty restrictive in movement then? Not, not really restrictive in movement, but you just, you felt like the, you know, the, the Michelin man when you're walking around in it. Yeah. Not, not something I'd want to ski in or anything. The, the interesting thing though, uh, our base is right next to the New, New Zealanders and the New Zealanders had really high tech, uh, synthetic fiber kind of clothing and they they looked uh very sleek and athletic where we looked very large and puffy yeah okay sounds like you had a good time though i had a really good good trip i didn't get sick which is one of the biggest things you got to worry about and uh didn't get hurt so good why would you get sick kissing too many uh seals uh think of being living with 800 other people in a uh, hygiene restrictive environment, um, they call it the McMurdo crud, and I was uh, able to avoid it. Yeah, well, I could see that part of it, just close proximity. Yeah, yeah, close proximity, varying levels of hygiene, and uh, uh, you know, it's a galley kind of food service, and and yeah, latrines and everything. Nice. Well, I have been deployed. A number of times and um you're doing the right thing john uh you got to take the opportunities to go find the, the cool stuff and and the interesting experiences outside of work otherwise you'll have done your time there and you won't have seen anything you won't have done anything and you'll be back home and you kind of miss the opportunity oh absolutely i took advice from everybody to take every trip we could take um we actually got to see the uh the scientists that were working on the europa probes um, they're basically little submarines. They're gonna they're gonna launch to Europa, uh, drill through the ice on their own, and then go navigating the the sea underneath the ice on Europa. I mean, that kind of stuff is like wow. That's that's pretty fascinating. And, and I saw it at the beginning. You know, they're twenty years out before they can launch. All right. Well, that's great to hear, John. Uh, I look forward to seeing more of your pictures, and uh, maybe you can send a few or maybe we can attach one or two to the uh, to the show notes of the episode if anybody wants to see you in your big red yeah i'll email you 
me out on the uh, at the pressure ridge too. Yeah, cool. some good shots there. All right. Well, and Gary Motley, Gary, uh, I know you uh, you've been hard at work in the hangar. What have you been up to? I have been, yes, uh, doing lots of things, trying to get my uh, my new Zenith kind of tuned up a little bit. Um, the short gist of it, we'll save for the the next big episode. But I I put new shoes on the thing. I've ordered some new LED lights. I'm going to put on there, and I got a stole kit on the way from Australia. So I'm just waiting for things packages to arrive so I can have some winter projects. So you're uh, you're going to hybridize your cruiser with a few other stole goodies, huh? I, I am. I'm going to trick this puppy out. Nice. All right. Now, are you are you slowing it down? Aren't aren't you kind of going against the idea of, of building a cruiser versus the standard uh, 750? No, in all practical terms, just like we discussed with the Sonics too, and some larger tires. Uh, pretty much, especially at the uh, the speed ranges that I typically cruise at, uh, there, there's really no significant penalty to it. I mean, sure, if you were to uh, worry about trying to do, you know, a straight line, high max RPM. One second, please. Well, uh, max RPM, uh, run speed run. Uh, you might see a one or two mile an hour, but you know, at, at normal cruise power settings that we use for airplanes, you won't see any significant difference. Yeah. All right. Pictures, Gary. Uh, I did post some on Facebook. Okay. So they're there. All right. Well, if anybody wants to see the new shoes, uh, hit up Gary on Facebook. All right. And rounding out the team for this episode is Mike Singleton. Mike has been on uh, several other times. He is currently serving as the vice president of the Sonics Builders and Pilots Foundation. You probably better know him by his various stuff in Texas doing... The Critters Lodge fly-in, the Rec Law fly-in, and a bunch of other stuff uh, with his partner in crime, Robert Barber. Mike, how's it going? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Doing really well. So, Mike, uh, I guess maybe that's the first order of business. We just came back from Rec Law. Some of us just came back from Rec Law. And um, I I really want to hear from your perspective uh, how Rec Law goes. So why don't you start it off by telling us about Rec Law? Okay, well, I'll I'll start out by uh, giving you an idea of what was going on uh, about the rain. There was a lot of it, and uh, Robert and I weren't even sure we were going to be able to land there. So the morning that we were going to go, which was the Friday that it started, uh, uh, we had somebody on site that was kind of giving us reports of what the runway conditions were like, and it wasn't looking real good, but... Uh, and the weather was bad enough that we couldn't couldn't get over there real early anyway. So um, I flew over to Bryan, Texas to meet with Robert. We went to breakfast, and when we got through with that, we called uh, our friend uh, at Reclaw and or uh, texted with him and got the information that it looked possibly doable. So we we headed that way and. Robert landed in front of me, and as soon as he landed, his comment, and this is not an exact quote, but it was something like, uh, good Lord, it's soft. <laughs> and so, uh, But I'd heard also, don't hit your brake, kind of thinking after I got on the ground and got out of the plane and looked around and saw what was going on, that uh, uh, this could be one of those wreck laws with a lot of incidents. And fortunately, uh, I don't think there was was any any serious things going on like that. Just uh, there were a number of people got stuck taxiing along the sides of the runway. But uh, 
the uh, the actual uh, uh, runway was good uh, as far as being serviceable. Uh, there was a lot of mudslinging after that, walking down the line uh, of all the planes up and down the runway and and in the back uh, pasture area. There's you could, there was mud all over a lot of airplanes, but uh, I think everybody had a good time. We got to see a lot of of good uh, uh, flybys and and. Uh, uh, see the the normal people, and and I was kind of surprised that so many people did show up because uh, because of the the soft field conditions. But it was a good turnout. I don't have any numbers for you, but uh, it was quite a few people. Uh, a lot of the same people. There were a few people that didn't come because of the mud, but uh, overall, I would say it was it was really good. The weather was great uh, the rest of the time. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what else to say. The camping was good. The, the nighttime weather was great for tent camping. It was pretty cool. So uh, in summary, well, that's that's my report. Well, I can Mike, add I, I, things to it. Go, go, ahead. go ahead. I got there uh, actually Thursday night. Uh, made the trip down with my son, picked him up in the Springs, took him as one of the first good trips he's been with me in, in a couple of decades. So that was a lot of fun for me. And posted a video on, on YouTube, too, for the – Red Claw trip. Um, so as we got progressively down there, the, the ceiling got progressively lower. By the time I got there about Thursday night, it was about 1,500 feet uh, broken. Uh, visibility was pretty good. Uh, very light misting rain at times. Uh, but yeah, when I hit that runway, it was instant that you knew it was significantly different from past Red Claws. Uh, it was very soft. I started to feel it sliding. Uh, almost started to slide a little bit to the right, but I was able to get it corrected up. Uh, but you certainly didn't want to stop on that runway. So, you know, as soon as you got down to a reasonable turn speed, you just kept going and kept the power going through because it, I was I was digging up huge ruts with those 5x5 five five tires that I had on the Zenith Cruiser. cruiser. Um, I got it through the mud pits back to uh, the flight line area. Actually, I got a good spot this year right across from the main hangar. Uh, usually that stuff is all completely booked up by the time I got there. So the weather had certainly kept a few people away. I would say overall, the attendance was probably down about 30%, uh, wouldn't you, Mike? Yeah, I'd say that's probably pretty close. Yeah, but the runway, and, because of the undulations, was basically just a series of mud pits. It got progressively <laughs> better day by day. Uh, but as far as the tents, even though it wasn't really raining after we got there, there was so much humidity in there. It looked at this as if you'd been in a deluge for days. The tent sides were so wet. Uh, my son actually went and stopped at Walmart in the local city there to pick up a pair of mud boots uh, so he could get around a little bit better uh, for the surfaces. Uh, but still, so that's what prompted me to put bigger shoes on. That was my second real experience with grass in the Zenith Cruiser. And I knew I wanted to do much more of it out in Utah and, and uh, Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. Uh, so I upgraded uh, to all six-inch rims so I could put some big boy tires on there. Ended up with 21-inch uh, mains. Uh, 8x6 and a, a standard 8x6 for the nose it makes a huge difference in the presence of the airplane. Uh, it, it taxis smoother. You get a little bit more uh, forgiveness and through the suspension with the tires. And I think they're going to work out pretty nice. Yeah, one thing I would like to add uh, on, on my report is that uh, the Camp Sonics area that we had used uh, before was unserviceable. It was it was kind of a mud hole in a low area. So uh, uh, Robert and I ended up uh, right on the uh, front row, right beside the uh, the redneck uh, control tower, and 
worked out pretty good. And and Jeff, of course, he he probably knew that that not being a Sonex, that he was not not going to be welcome in the Camp Sonex area. So he parked way down away from us. But uh, <laughs> no, actually, uh, next year hopefully we can get it back. And 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 Jeff, you're welcome to bring your your um, uh, what would you call it a uh, um, uh, your other than Sonex airplane anyway. Uh, and join us there, so we we can have Camp Sonex and Camp uh, Zenith all together. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a real motley group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> well, we're an inclusive crowd, so we won't worry too much about the details. <laughs> well, um, for my part of the trip, you know, we were watching the weather too, and those those uh, cells that were passing over were traveling north. So after they passed over the top of Reclaw and dropped all that rain, they continued on north. And so it was a pretty good barrier between me coming from up up north in Kansas City through that line of, of rain on uh, on Friday. And Friday was just, it just wasn't happening. It did not really clear until probably about noon. It had low overcast Friday. And then by about noon, it started to break up, but it was still, it's still cloudy all the way through. So... There wasn't enough time to uh, to complete the flight. Then the big question was on Saturday what the weather was going to do. And so I thought, well, maybe if I can get out first thing Saturday morning, uh, I can still get down there and, and enjoy the, the remainder of the day Saturday and part of the day Sunday. But again, low clouds, low overcast, and it didn't break up until about 11 o'clock. And by that point, uh, there just wasn't any point in going down there only to basically spend the night and turn around and fly home on Sunday. So... Uh, just due to weather, I uh, I ended up pulling the plug on making the trip. From what I understand, uh, Mike Needenthal had kind of the same problem. He had planned to leave out of Colorado Springs, come by and spend a few days there at the, uh, the fly-in, and then take his plane on out to Vegas to move it to its new hangar. And he saw that same line of storms. It was kind of cutting the the uh, the whole south area. Yeah, from Oklahoma and Texas on south, we couldn't get through. And so he just made the decision to, to abort and just head straight out to Vegas. And so that's what he did. From what I understand, he had a real nice trip heading out there. Two things. Uh, one was uh, the big disappointment for me was that the Nanchangs uh, did not land uh, there at Reclaw. They went over, I believe, to Cherokee County and stayed on the pavement. But uh, I was really looking forward to the... Uh, seeing Carl's new Nanchang and also seeing the uh, paint job on his uh, his first one. So that was kind of a disappointment. And the other thing I'd like to add, uh, this probably should come at the end of this discussion, but uh, if you haven't been to Law and you can get there, do it, because it is an absolute hoot. It is so much fun watching everybody land and do the flybys. And it's just it's just a great fly-in, one of, one of the best I've ever been to. Yeah, it was kind of too bad about Carl. Um, I know he had a good flight down there and enjoyed flying. He, he posted a short video over on Facebook flying over the parade in town. So I think he probably had 90% of the fun that he would have had normally. But uh, it's too bad he didn't get a chance to put both those side-by-side, park next to everyone else. That would have been kind of cool to see that. Yeah, it would. And, you know, it was it was good to be able to, to visit with him and uh, Ian Wayman. And but uh, it would have been much nicer if they could have been there on the field with us the whole time with their planes. Yeah. 
All right, Gary. So if you were going to give this a uh, a score, how would you summarize an overall score of this year's Reclaw Flying? You know, I, I think the overall Reclaw is, is still a good uh, 4.5. I do, really, the downside, though, was just the weather this year. Uh, it really made the field you know, pretty rough to deal with, with all the mud. And there were quite a few people that had to get pulled out. Uh, just to give you another example, you know, that they had a, a fuel truck that normally goes around with, you know, driven by a, a four-wheel drive pickup. <laughs> but this year they had the, the, the fuel tank, the pickup, and both of those were being pulled around the site by actually a farm tractor. That gives you a clue uh, of what the grounds were really like. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a real mud fest, but Mike uh, really got some great uh, shots uh, of the mud slinging on there and all the airplanes covered. Uh, with all the mud and dirt, and yeah, it was uh, it was all up inside my cowling and everywhere else when I finally got back home. Yeah, Mike, I almost forgot about that. Um, was that your video or was that Robert's video that you posted? Uh, it was mine. Okay, all right. Well, if you send me the link, I'll put it in the show notes if people want to check it out. Okay, I'll do that. All right. Well, any uh, any final thoughts on on Reclaw before we move on? No, go. Uh, That's all I can say. Yeah, go. Yeah, absolutely. And if you have any questions, look at the video. There, there are quite a few videos that have been posted uh, over the past years, and I think at least four or five uh, that I've seen of this year's rec law. So you can get a real good idea of what what happens there. And it's it's if you can make it, yes, definitely do it. It's not for the faint of heart flying in the pattern, however, when it gets busy. <laughs> uh, situational awareness really requires an acute ear. And trying to figure out what your speeds are going to be versus everyone else so that you can work in. Um, yeah. So that's the exciting part to me. So I really enjoy that part of it. But if you listen yeah, to it's, online, it's it's a Zenith Cruiser to Reclaw 2018. Uh, I've got quite a bit of pattern work in there. So you can hear the chatter, what's going on between all the aircraft trying to report and trying to figure out what your spot is for either doing a low pass, doing a takeoff or landing. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, and you can avoid some of that by getting there early. Departures well, the aren't too bad. Too, so. Yeah, but yes, you were. And, you know, that's for the brave people. Yeah, yeah, or the uh, small of mine, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, well, good deal. Next year, uh, it's on my calendar for next year, and uh, we're going to give it another shot. All right. Well, um, I just got a couple of quick news items to throw out. Uh, first off, this one has been hanging around out there for about the past month, but the EAA just published their flight test guide. And this is available for purchase through the EAA web store. I'll put a link to the show notes. But um, I, I've only had a chance to kind of thumb through it. it. looks like a really good reference for how you methodically approach flight testing your new home belt. And Mike... You probably have more flight tests of Sonics than anybody. I'd be really curious to see uh, what your thoughts of this are when you get a chance to review it. So just keep that in mind and, and maybe give me a report when you when you thumb through it. Okay, I'll do that. And then, uh, you know, Mark Shable at the factory uh, had a, a really big part in writing this flight test guide. So kudos to him. I think he's done all of us a, a great service. And I know this is part of the larger effort that he's doing with the, uh, the, the Kit Manufacturers Association, and that is to try to get the FAA to relax some of the Phase 1 
from just a, a straight across the board 40 hours or possibly 25 hours to more like the ELSA rules where it's task-based. If you go out, you, you fly these tasks, you do these things, and when you're done, you're done. And so this is the first step in kind of moving us to that task-based rather than just hours-based. So more to follow, I guess, as we uh, see how this uh, starts to positively impact the safety record and, and is reflected on by the FAA. The next thing, Sonics is running their tail kit holiday special, so you can go to their website and check it out. But if you want to get started on a project, they're offering anywhere from about $300 to $475 discount if you buy your tail kit before Christmas. So maybe you need to drop a few hints, or maybe you just need to buy yourself a stocking stuffer, but it's a chance to get going and, and save a few bucks in the process. All right, well, um, let's let's jump right in. And uh, I guess um, to start this conversation on ADSB, I think what we need to do is conduct just a, a very quick, broad-level review of ADSB, what it is. We'll make sure we kind of hit the, the key terminology that we're going to be talking about when we go through specific options, and then we'll kind of drill down and, into the equipment. So, John, I know you've been tracking this pretty closely. Can you just kind of walk us through, just in broad conceptual terms, what are we talking about and what's important to keep in mind? Well, we're talking about is the uh, the 2020 mandate that the FAA is putting out for any aircraft operating in a controlled airspace to broadcast out their position um, to the system um, and... Uh, in, in some method. So, and of course, because we're experimental, um, we fall into a different set of guidelines versus the uh, certified folks like a Cessna have to do. If you don't fly in controlled airspace, um, you're not, a, you're not a, in, impacted by this uh, mandate. But most of us in the Sonics is, we, we go, you know, 150 miles an hour, we're going to run into a controlled airspace somewhere along the way. Plus, the, the key thing about this new system is if you broadcast your, your position to the system, um, that gives situational awareness not only to the air traffic controllers, but also to other pilots who are receiving that same information. So the old idea that uh, looking down in your uh, – at your iPad and flying, you know, looking for traffic. Um, it's, it's actually quite nice. Uh, if you also, uh, leverage that with keeping your head on a swivel and looking outside, it's almost kind of fun now to, if you have, if you're equipped to get in or ADSB in to see a target on your iPad, a couple of miles out and then see how quickly can you visually acquire that target. And it's satisfying when you do see him and he's right where the iPad said he was going to be. So, John, uh, back up just a little bit and let's just make sure people are tracking on the in versus out. Okay. Um, in has been available to all of us. Um, that's not a requirement by the FAA. Um, it's just basically a receiver of <clears throat> uh, two different frequencies. One is tower-based, which is the 978 UAT. Uh, the other is um, 1090 ES extended squitter, which is aircraft to aircraft. Um, 
So by default, if you're flying around and you want to get ADS-B in, you go to buy uh, anywhere between a $100 and a $800 receiver. Um, it then collects that, that information through either one or both of those frequencies and transmits it to your iPad or your EFIS, depending on if it's capable, um, through Wi-Fi and displays that traffic and weather information uh, on your iPad. Okay, and that's the in. That's the optional in. That's in. <clears throat> yeah, anybody can do that. You don't have to be out. Um, the thing is, if you're only in um, and you're flying in an area that nobody else is broadcasting out, the FAA will not activate the out frequencies or the towers until they have a traffic that's actually complying with both in and out. So you can have a, a really cool ADSB system in and flying across the middle of Nebraska and you're not getting any information, no weather, no traffic, because you, nobody has activated the system. So that's one of the keys to having ADSB out is you activate the system as you fly through it. Yeah, and if anybody is confused by that, there there are some good re uh, references, and I'll put some links in the show notes. You can read up more on how the system works. But I, I'll just, I guess, maybe just say that the system is modular. You can pick and choose the pieces that you want. What frequency do you want? What style of of equipment do you want for in or out? So it, it's modular. You can make these decisions. But you just need to know that depending on the decisions you make, you may not get all the services available to you. And, and that may be um, like what you're talking about, John, where you only, you only see services at certain times or maybe not even see all of the services that are potentially out there. And in reference to that, many of us who fly to Oshkosh uh, fly over what we, you know, the, the elites call flyover country. Uh, if you're in the middle of Nebraska or Iowa, um, you and you haven't activated the system, you're not getting the benefits of the what they call it, the FISB and the TISB. So TISB is the traffic, FISB is the flight information. So you don't get the weather. And I've sat, I've been flying, I've flown through uh, western Nebraska looking at a giant thundercell and refreshing my iPad going, I am not getting this data that I know is there because there were no towers activated. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I guess maybe just rounding out the, the background discussion. Um, I think most people are aware that the rule goes into effect on January 1st, 2020. We keep calling it the 2020 deadline or the 2020 mandate. But what that means is that, if you want to fly in areas that currently today in 2018 require a mode C transponder to go in, after the rule kicks in, you're going to need ADSB to go into those same areas. You're still going to need your, your transponder, but you're going to need a transponder that is also uh, ADSB compliant, whether that's because it, it, it internally it's compliant or because you slap on a, an extra bit and that makes it compliant. So 2020 deadline, if you go into those uh, Charlie and Bravo airspaces and other areas, you're going to need ADSB uh, out compliance. If you never go into those and you're flying in uncontrolled areas, 
Um, well, if you are successfully flying without going into those airspaces now, you can continue to do so after 2020 without any problem. And then, that's and correct, then John. You mentioned the the weather and traffic. Traffic is nice uh, if you have a tablet that you fly with for flight or one of the other apps. You can display that ADSB traffic on your on your iPad, and then, uh, like you mentioned, it becomes a game because you realize there's a lot of traffic out there that you never saw before, and that was kind of the thing that I was impressed with. Man, there's traffic everywhere. I don't see anybody. Well, I, in in something will come up uh, if I don't have the filters on my uh, iPad correctly. Um, I'm on a collision course with a uh, you know a seven or seven thirty seven flying. Uh, 30,000 feet above me. Uh, but, and then look up and see the contrails like, Oh, there he is. I see him. Oh, and that's uh, you know, that's Southwest flight uh, 347. Yeah. Cause I can see that on the iPad. Now, the other thing which you can receive, again, this is one of those optional services. If you have ADSB in is that in flight weather and Gary, you've been flying with, with weather now on your Dynon for, uh, for the last year. How does, how is that working? Do you like it? Oh, I think it's phenomenal. Actually, I purchased one of the uh, ADSB in units that was separate, you know, dashboard that I put in my Sonics uh, actually a few years ago because of the cross-country stuff. It's very difficult to do VFR anyway, especially if you're really trying to make it somewhere. So having the ability to look ahead for a while really greatly increases, I think, flight safety and your peace of mind as you're trying to cover large distances. Uh, since I've integrated to the new, uh, you know, all-inclusive Dynon system, my entire panel is basically Dynon now. So I get I have ADSB in and out. Um, I, I get a lot of lot more situational awareness, uh, especially when John was talking about traffic. You know, there have been times I'd go across countries and I thought I would never see anybody, but you know, you probably weren't looking in the right spot. And as most of us know, you really can't spot these small planes any further than about two miles away, anyway. But when you're looking at an ADSB fish finder, you can see the little critters, you know, swimming around everywhere. Uh, sometimes it looks pretty hectic, especially as you're coming into some of the uh, Class D control areas or, or airports. And it really does greatly assist with situational awareness. I really, uh, really zoom down in tight uh, when I'm in pattern, even going to my uh, Class D airspace, my home field at Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airspace Airport. Uh, not only am I listening to where everybody is, but you can actually see the vast majority of them, especially now that I'm triggering the system because I have the ADSB out. Uh, so we know that, you know, you don't have to have ADSB out unless you're in a, a transponder required environment, which is basically controlled airspace or above 10,000 feet. Uh, and there are a lot of there's a lot of area of country where you won't have to have the thing and you may never need to have the thing. Um, but, you know, if you look at some of the side benefits to it. I, it's it's really really is pretty nice, even though they kind of you know shoved it down our throats. But uh, you know the cost continues continues to come down a little bit. Uh, it just depends on how you're going to do it. If for those guys who are building new Sonics, you have a great opportunity to now to pick some systems uh, because most of the stuff you have to buy anyway, especially your transponders. You might as well get one that's going to equip you out with a 1090 ES out. Uh, so you get uh, better reception and better quality of information. Uh, and then it's not so much of a, of a hardship. Well, you know, Gary, talking to my, um, I'm active in a glider club and the gliders are exempt because they don't have a powered, um, electrical system, but a lot of them already have transponders and I'm trying to convince a lot of them to go to ADSB out, um, primarily to light up the network, 
so that those guys driving Cirruses that are fixated on their their uh, you know Garmin G three thousand panels as they fly will at least see our gliders in the air as they come through our area. Yeah, I mean everything we can do to increase our situational awareness is great. Uh, you know, I've not only got the brightest strobes I could put on this plane that I could find, I also got uh, twin uh, landing lights so I can put them in a wigwag function. And, and like I said, I've just ordered two, uh, I think, extremely powerful LED spotlights that I'm going to be putting on this thing, too. So when I start coming into these patterns, I'm going to just be blazing up the whole sky. If they fail to see me now, then I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, John, I think you're right. The cost issue aside... I think most people would agree that see and be seen only gets you so far. And if you can add this magic box, which allows you to greatly improve your your understanding of where traffic is and not get run over by somebody else, most people would, would instinctively want to do that. So then it just becomes a hassle factor and a cost factor. And I think that we're probably, as a, as a population, we're going to get over that pretty quickly. Well, I've flown, uh, I've flown sailplanes up close to 18,000 feet. Uh, on the Front Range Corridor of Colorado. And there's military and commercial aircraft that will see me if I had uh, a decent transponder, especially if I had ESB out. And um, I know air traffic control is aware of where I am, and they're warning people around it. But I have gotten flown under by C-130s and uh, C-17s um, in a glider, and it's a little spooky. Okay, well, I want to just uh, make sure that people are also tracking on the differences between the 978 UAT and the 1090 ES. We're talking about two different technologies here, and so you have to make a decision. Am I going to go with the 978-style equipment, or am I going to go with the 1090 ES equipment? And it really just depends on if you have a functioning Mode C transponder and you want to add a bit to it, then that bit you would add was a 978 UAT transmitter that will piggyback on your Mode C. If you don't have a Mode C and you just want to get an all-in-one solution, the 1090 ES is a Mode S transponder with the additional ADSB information that is being transmitted with it. And we'll talk about you know some of the details on that. But it's worth noting that 1090 ES is the international standard, and that's what everybody else is using. 978 currently is only available in the U.S. So there's maybe a international implication or maybe a, a slight resale implication. Um, it, it's not a bad addition, but if you're going to be buying new, you might as well go with the, uh, the, the, the better standard, the 1090 ES. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and... And one of the things I've learned, because um, I'm run, I'm currently blowing um, the 978 and not 1080, is I'll fly, and if I'm not being swept by air traffic control um, from a local airport, I will not activate the system, even though I am broadcasting out to the towers. But they don't have a, a radar uh, fix on me, and so they don't turn the towers on. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think you're going to see a lot of people with similar stories. The 978 is technically approved, and it does work in most situations. And if compliance is is uh, is really what you're looking for, that's a way to do the compliance. But I think that it's hands down you're going to get better performance with the 1090ES. So it, I guess there's there's a couple of ways um, that you can go about 
thinking, how am I going to equip my airplane? And they really kind of come down to the standalone integrated system or, again, that sort of add-on type type system. And, Gary, like you mentioned, if you're building a new project, you have a great opportunity. You have to buy a transponder. So you could buy a used transponder off eBay for a few hundred dollars, but you're not going to buy a brand-new Mode C transponder. That just doesn't make any sense. And so why not buy a brand-new Mode S transponder, and why not buy a brand-new Mode S transponder that also will couple in and do your, your ADSB out requirement. And it's a great opportunity. You know, one price, get it all done, and you're set. Okay, well, um, let's talk about some of the specific options that are out there. And the first one, I think, is the UAvionics options. I know that uh, we've been watching these. Uh, Mike Niedenthal picked up one of their options. John, can you kind of run us through the, the three options that UAvionics is, is offering? Uh, UAvionics produces a tiny little, almost like a little hockey puck, uh, solution that provides you both in and out uh, ADSB. Um, and but it requires that you have a GPS, a certified GPS, um, and, or a receiver that can feed it your position. And it requires you have at least a mode S or a mode C transponder that it sniffs your uh, squat code and your pressure altitude. And then it squits that down to the towers, your position. So it, it combines your current mode C with altitude encoder with your GPS position and your um, configured tail number or your, uh, I forget the uh, the term they use. Uh, there's a there's a code that... It's the hex code. Yeah, the hex code to the system, to the ground towers. And then that would activate the system and let air traffic control and everybody else that's receiving know where, where you are, where, which way you're going, and how fast you're going, and how high you are. That's the Uibonics solution. Yeah, and, and they make that same basic solution in three flavors. Uh, the one that you're talking about, the original UAvionics, is the Echo UAT. And if you do not have a GPS position source, they offer a GPS that you can add to it. It's about $400 upgrade. If you already have one in your EFIS, uh, you can just pair it together. And as long as it's an approved GPS, it'll talk to the to the Echo. The Echo itself is about $1,000. And so your total is about 1400 yeah, and that's key. The The GPS source has to be uh, FAA approved because you're going, you're broadcasting a position and speed uh, direction and altitude um, that other people are going to rely on. So you just can't have, uh, you know, your iPhone sending its GPS signal to, to the system. It has to be an approved GPS source. Yeah, and without, you know, retredging the, you know, the old, NavWorks problem. That's essentially what got them in trouble was a lack of an approved GPS position source. Yeah, they they substituted a commercial GPS source and not an FAA, the FAA approved source that they had uh, certified with. Yeah. The other two UAvionics products are the Sky Beacon, which is the wingtip strobe mount unit, and the Tail Beacon, 
which is the tail beacon mount unit. So it's exactly the same thing. They take all in one, they miniaturize the components, they package it in a form factor that looks exactly like a wingtip nav light. And so you remove your old lab nav light, you slap this puppy on in its place, connect it up to the existing power and ground lines, and then it just works. Same thing with the tail beacon. Those two are their more recent products. The the Sky Beacon is going to be shipping very soon, and the Tail Beacon, they're still working on their final STC approvals, and they're going to be shipping either late December or possibly in early January 2019. And keep in mind, those are leveraging, you have to have an existing Mode C or Mode S transponder um, with pressure altitude being reported. So th- those are not a all-in-one solution. They piggyback off of what you have, and they're only 978 compliant. Right, and and um, perhaps that was a bit confusing. When I said all-in-one, I mean the unit itself includes a GPS position source and the guts that sniff your transponder code and transmit that out to the, to the ground stations. Yeah, I think that's important. People need to understand that there's... These all-in-one, there's a lot of confusion on what is all-in-one. Right. Yeah, all-in-one is it's really kind of a misnomer. Um, so we'll just, again, to be perfectly clear, the UAvionics, all of them require to piggyback off of your functioning mode C transponder. Now, the good thing about the UAvionics is it also is ADSBN. So it's receiving and broadcasting to your devices um, through Wi-Fi your position and any weather and, and traffic. So you don't have to have a separate system to receive. Yeah. Now, one of the best things that UAvionics has going for it is that they're very simple to install. In some cases, two wires and, and plug them in on the wing or the tail. And uh, and they're relatively inexpensive. So $1,000 for the Echo plus another 400 if you need the GPS for a total of about 1400 The... Sky Beacon, which is the wingtip mount, runs for about eighteen hundred, and the Tail Beacon is projected to be a little bit cheaper at sixteen seventeen hundred once they finally start shipping those things. So you know you're looking at that range of prices from about a thousand if you only needed one bit to about eighteen hundred if you needed a bunch of these things. That's a really good price if you just invested, you know, two thousand dollars in a Mode C transponder that you're really happy with, um, and you want to you know, continue to use it instead of having to replace it. Right. Now, the Sky Beacon, again, the wingtip Sky Beacon, is FAA certified. So you can use it on uh, a Cessna. They have a whole list of airplanes that are approved under STC. It's like 170, something like that. There's a whole bunch of them. So because it is an an STC, FAA-approved ADSP solution, that one does qualify for the current FAA rebate. So you could knock $500 off of that if you were to buy it within the rebate, follow all those procedures, and uh, and that could bring your total price down to around $1,300 for that particular model. Mike, what kind of system have you put in? Uh, I haven't. I have not been flying uh, in the uh, Mode C areas, so I have not put one in. I've been contemplating it and probably will pretty soon, but uh, I've just kind of avoided it uh, for the most part. Yeah, I know you're right there on the outskirts, but I figured you'd probably be cutting through the Mode C veil. So, no, I uh, most most of the places I go are north and west, and even south, and and that keeps me out of 
the mode C. If I go east, then yes. And there are a couple of places where I'd have to do just a little bit of skirting around, you know, follow the, the mode C circle just a little bit. In fact, I'll probably be flying down south uh, for lunch tomorrow and uh, I'll, I'll have to do that. But it's it's not much of a detour, so I really haven't bothered with it so far. Well, all those videos I see that you post on Facebook, I thought you caught your lunch every day. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> well, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about the FAA debate just to reinstate it, because um, I just explored that and found, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of an eye opener because I was excited. I said, hey, they just initiated this uh, the FAA rebate again. I'm going to actually upgrade my system to a fully certified ADSB out solution. I went on their website. I started applying for it. They put, I put in my tail number. You are not eligible because you have broadcasted ADSB already. And so it's only for people who have never done it. Yeah, and I think that's that's not immediately obvious when you read the information. It it really kind of reads like if you buy something off of this list, you reserve a, a a spot in the rebate, and then you install it and go successfully fly. It's that easy. We're going to send you a check for $500. But you're right. There is that caveat that there's a whole bunch of disqualifying factors. If you fail to get it uh, tested and approved, though that disqualifies you. If you already have it up and running, you can't retroactively apply for the rebate. That disqualifies you. Or in your case, John, if you have another solution and you're switching solutions, that disqualifies you. Yeah, and let me explain my solution. My um I, I was an early adopter of the SkyGuard uh, ADSB in and out um, because I wanted to leverage off my old Garmin 320 uh, Mode C transponder um, with an AC uh, altitude encoder. It's it's really you know really old, but hey, I got it for four hundred dollars off eBay, like you say, and um, it was early in my build. And then ADSB came along. Well, for a thousand bucks, I can put this SkyGuard in. Um, I've had inconsistent results with the SkyGuard. I've had air traffic control tell me that I'm reporting 3,000 feet above where I am. And uh, it's uh, I've, I've finally given up and said, okay, I'm just going to go with a certified solution by a new Modest transponder that's full uh, ADSB out compliant with a GPS source. And when I applied, I said, hey, you know, it's $2,600 on aircraft spruce right now for the TRIG 2200 or 22. And uh, it's qualified for the rebate. And the FAA said, well, yeah, but you've been broadcasting for two years on uh, ADSB. So you're not qualified. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that Yeah, that's frustrating. And it's doubly so when, when you're perhaps basing your purchase decision on whether you get that rebate or not. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't. It would have been nice to have the five hundred dollars, but it's not going to change my decision. Actually, I've already perked, or I already put the order in. I haven't gotten it yet. Okay, well, um, moving on from the nine seventy eight UAT and like the UAVionics solutions, we start getting into the Mode S solutions. And uh, so, I just want to review what Dynon offers. So, Gary, you and I both are running Dynon packages. You have like the the, the deluxe. Set up and, and describe what a Dynon customer would do to get an operating ADSB out solution. 
Actually, it's really pretty easy. Uh, I really like the way the Dynon has, has, has developed their system. You know, of course, you need, uh, you know, the Skyview display or something uh, uh, comparable to that so you can see everything. Uh, their transponder, actually, I believe, is made by Trig, but kind of rebranded as Dynon. And, of course, I have the Class 1 transponder for the 1090ES, which is higher power. It's also good for higher altitudes, not that I'm going to get there. Uh, but it gives me that added advantages. Um, so, and then the third portion of you was that GPS source. Well, you need a GPS source anyway for most of your navigation that goes along with the Dynon navigation uh, maps and so forth. And so now they upgraded their GPS to a 2020 compliant GPS system. Uh, so you're going to mount that external GPS internal antenna just like you would any GPS antenna. Uh, but that's going to feed uh, the WAS uh, accurate positions back through the transponder and, and the software system. It actually goes through a secondary ADS box, uh, which transmits and also receives to, requires a separate antenna. And that antenna looks an awful lot like my transponder antenna. I'm using little shark fin styles versus the... Uh, the rod and bulb styles that look like they just stick out like a porcupine. Uh, I found those rod and, and ball styles just don't seem to last me very long. I, I invariably seem to hit those things when I'm washing the bottom of the planes and, and crack those things right off. So after doing several of those of my Sonics, uh, I went ahead and went with the, the shark fin style of antennas. Um, so, you know, you've got a, a certified GPS source and their GPS receiver. Uh, their ADS box gives you both in and out. Uh, it just requires a little extra coax cable to feed from the box to the uh, separate and distinct ADS B antenna. Uh, but after that, you know, of course, all the software is integrated to it. Uh, the transponder is pretty much a set and forget. Uh, when you power the system on, everything goes through a CAN bus system. So unit after unit after unit powers up, starts speaking to each one each one another. Uh, so once you set your squat code, whenever you start up, it's going to do the appropriate thing based on whether you're on the ground or whether, whether you're in the air. And it knows the difference and, and will react accordingly. So, you know, add that with the new engine I got, that UL Power 350IS, which is a FADAC engine. Uh, my life is just getting simpler and simpler and simpler with vastly much more capability and informational situation awareness. Yeah, the Dynon, uh, I really enjoy mine as well. Now, I'm not quite there, but if you were setting up a new Dynon Skyview panel, you really only need to make a couple of easy choices. You're going you're gonna to get a transponder, and you're probably going to get a Dynon transponder because it just works so well with the Skyview. So all you have to do is get the high-power Class 1, which is the Dynon 261 transponder. It's a couple hundred dollars more. And then you're going to get a GPS position source with your Skyview. Now they offer the two antennas. They offer the 2020 antenna, which is the high-precision WASP GPS. And they offer the just the standard one, the, the almost the, you know, the, the low-grade one. So you just need to select the 2020 high-precision antenna, and you're there. You have your out solution done, and it's very, very simple. Yeah, it does require that separate little ADS box, and that actually box is made by UAvionics, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it's not like it's all simple proprietary, uh, but those companies, Trig, UAvionics, have been working closely with Dynon, so everything does seamlessly integrate. Uh, and it's a very small little box, probably the size of a large pack of cigarettes or something, easily uh, mountable someplace. Um, just, just requires a little bit of wiring work, but... 
uh, Dynon in particular, for example, has a lot of prefabricated wiring harnesses um, that usually the most you have to do is insert uh, one connector on one end because they leave one off because they, they figure you've got to feed it through, you know, a maze of conduit and turns and whatever else you need to do to get the wiring where you need it to go. So uh, very simplified wiring system, uh, easily integrated. And again, with the CAN bus architecture, everything just talks to each other seamlessly. So if you're keeping track of prices, the Class 1 Dynon transponder, the 261 transponder, is around $2,100. The 2020 GPS is a little under $600. And the ADSB in box by the UAvionics made box is about $800. So you can put all that together and get kind of the total system price through Dynon. And again, the, the big advantage is that it integrates in with the Skyview so seamlessly that it's worth spending a little extra money to have that level of integration. All right, um, as we just kind of run through the list, the, another option that uh, I have, I've heard people talk about is made by Garmin. Now, Garmin has a whole line of Modest transponders that are ADSB out uh, capable. Some of them are, are in and out. Those prices are, are higher, as you might expect with a, a Garmin product. But for $4,000, you can get an integrated in-out Modest transponder with um, – with integral GPS. Um, but if you're looking for something that is less expensive, if you also have that functioning mode C transponder, Garmin makes a 978 solution that you actually disconnect your transponder antenna. You plug this little box in line into the, into the coax, and it does the same thing that UAVionics is doing. It is sensing the signal coming through the coax. It's programming the 978 transmitter to match your mode C, and you're getting that combined piggyback kind of signal. That is the GDL82. And again, that's a 978 solution. It piggybacks on your mode C. That whole thing is about $1,800, and that also is certified, so experimental or regular certified airplane, and eligible for that $500 FAA rebate. It's my understanding, though, uh, that with the Garmin, you basically have to make all your wiring harnesses, though. I don't believe any of them are prefabricated, so either make them yourself or seek professional assistance to do so. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Okay, um, I guess the last one on my list is um, the equipment that Sonics sells through their web store, and what do they recommend, especially stuff that's going to talk well with the MGL. So if you go to Sonics's web store... And you look at the MGL equipment packages, there are two that are going to come up as far as transponders. One is a Sandia transponder, and the other, kind of the preferred option, is the Trig. And both of those are going to work well with the MGL uh, EFISs. The Sandia is a Mode C, so again, you would need some sort of piggyback onto that Mode C, probably a UAvionics Echo or something on those lines. Uh, that Sandia transponder is about $1,700, and then you'd have the price of adding the Echo or, or something similar to it for another $1,000 to $1,500. The Trig TT22, that is probably the best solution if you're looking for a pretty decent all-in-one Modest transponder. And Gary, like you mentioned, that's actually who makes the Dynon transponders. It's a Trig transponder that has been configured and sort of rebranded as the Dynon unit. 
They make both a panel mount and a remote mount transponder, which is really, really nice in a tight panel because your control head can be a very small, discrete control head that's easy to mount. Or in the case of the Dynon, it's just controlled right through your EVIS. The software controls how you, how you program it and do your squat code. And then you can mount the actual body of it somewhere else where you have plenty of room. The Trig transponders are around $2,100. And all you would need to do to kind of complete the bundle is to add some sort of approved GPS source, such as a, uh, well, Trig makes an antenna that you can add for it. It's about $500 for that. So a total bundle price of around $2,700. Now, John, you said you did order a Trig TT22 transponder? Yes, I just did. Um, I didn't do it through Sonics. I did it through Aircraft Spruce. Um, if you browse carefully through the Aircraft Spruce um, <clears throat> uh, website, you'll find one that's called the Trig ADSB 2020 Bundle. And it is for experimental and light sport. It inc includes the GPS source, the antenna for the GPS, I believe a harness. I hope it has a harness. And the Trig 22 mode S transponder. And it's a uh, remote head transponder. So I can, uh, I can mount the head up in my panel, but then the transponder itself I can mount somewhere else. It, it does not communicate with my MGL Extreme EFIS. I do believe it does interface with the, uh, the newer models, the, the, um, the IFS. Yeah, the Discovery and the Voyager. But it, it will not communicate with my. That just means you won't be able to display that information on your EFIS, but it'll still work just fine as far as compliance. Oh, absolutely. And it's all in one. I mean, to worry about it because it, it's got its own internal GPS source or it's got its own GPS source. It's got its own pressure altitude. Um, I'm just going to plug this thing in, configure it with my information, um, go get it tested by, a, uh, you know, my transponder uh, check guy and then I'll be compliant and I won't have to worry about it anymore. And I'll, well, I'll be 1090 ES. There is a final thing that we need to talk about when you talk about being compliant. You know, not only does it need to be, you have to have your transponder certified like you would normally do, uh, but you also need to do pull your report from the FAA database on the website. Uh, basically, you can just punch in your information, uh, your end number, the date and approximate time of your flight, and they'll respond back to you uh, in a relatively short period of time and give you a full report as whether everything is okay or not and what might need to be uh, corrected. So you do need to pull that report up. They also recommend you do it periodically as well. Uh, I know that when I went to Oshkosh this last year, I just stopped their little booth, killing some time, talking to them, and they pulled up my report. And, of course, having flown from uh, Denver to Oshkosh, it was multiple flights. And the first thing she says, God, you fly a lot. <laughs> but she had all of my ADS information <clears> there, and it was just pinging away like a banshee. Yeah, I was actually on that website last night. I punched in my info for my last flight, and I got nothing but red report across the board. Uh, so apparently not being ADSB out does not give you a clean bill of ADSB health. <laughs> I was just curious what it would come up because I do have a mode S transponder, but I don't have it paired to the approved 2020 GPS in the Dynon. So that's what the problem is. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're not getting, they're not certifying your position. Right. Um, I went, Gary, I went to the same uh, booth at Oshkosh and the guy pulled mine up and he, uh, what I found amazing was, yes, he had the same data that I was seeing on the website, but he plotted me on Google Maps every flight I had done um, over the summer. Um, and I was commuting between my house and uh, Centennial. And it's spooky how much information they're gathering and keeping. Yeah, the caveat these days is by, by certain, Big Brother is watching. And, and recording, and they're not deleting the data. Nope. I mean, it, he, it, it showed me in my, in my traffic pattern at my air park. So, <laughs> and my speeds, altitudes, everything. Yeah, John, um, all that aside, uh, that does bring up another point. The FAA has said that once you have your ADSB up and running and you're compliant, if it's installed in the airplane, it's not optional anymore. You have to run it all the time if it's installed. So you can't have a switch and you say, well, I'm not going into, into controlled airspace today, so there's no need for me to turn on my ADSB. I'll just flip it off or I'll pull the breaker and disable it. What they've said is, no, it has to be up and running once you have it installed. Yeah, that's right. So um, those of us who may ever want to go do some scud running down riverbeds, um, want to keep that in mind. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, surveillance is kind of a, I don't know, I guess people are becoming more accustomed to it, but, uh, it's getting easier and easier to provide the FAA with the enforcement material that they're going to use against you. I guess I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with some final thoughts. So, if a typical Sonics builder is, says, hey, uh, I, I really need to do something about ADSB, what should I do? Well, I guess I have some thoughts on, on that. So the first situation, and we've covered all this already, but to kind of summarize, the first situation is a current builder. You're going to be building for the next two years. You haven't bought any of your instruments. You're not really sure what it is you want, but you're thinking ahead. Gary, what would you recommend someone in that situation do? Uh, again, I'd go ahead and start planning for the uh, the full board kit. Go for the 1090ES uh, Class One transponder configuration in some some fashion or another, and just be done with it. Okay, I suppose you could look at a like a Garmin uh, G3X type solution or one of their standalone things. You could certainly go with Dynon, or you could go with an MGL current Ethos with the Trig. TT22 transponder. All those are going to be great. And if you run the prices, they're not that far off each other. So there may be advantages uh, a little bit here or there, but the prices are going to be fairly similar by the time you really add up all the bits and pieces. Well, there are other brands we really haven't talked and, and, about, but they get a little bit higher up in price. Uh, you know, a Perio that made the Stratus uh, also makes their own transponder now. I believe there's one that has called Lynx that's out there that actually has a mini display to it built in it as well. You know, it'd be a little hard for me to read, I think, at this age, but uh, but they already encompass their own display right on the transponder. Uh, so there, there are other options out there. They get a little bit pricier and pricier. So uh, continue to shop. And as you're building, of course, everyone's always told us 
buy your avionics at the very last moment because it will change uh, about every six months. So, John, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say the same thing Gary said is if you're building and you're say two years out, wait. Um, but keep keep in mind, I would not buy uh, go bargain basement, get an old Mozi, and then uh, band aid it to make it compliant. I would go straight for the um, the Mode S. Uh, class one and and just you know you're gonna you're just gonna be much happier with it if you are ever uh trying to bargain basement it and i don't think you're gonna make a much uh of a, a bargain but if you already have your mode c then you know these these uh 978 solutions are fun um, especially if you like it if you're having trouble with your mode c well like i am um i just going to go ahead and cut bait and go with a new one. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, I guess to me, the, the next category is the plane is up and flying. You have a Dynon or a GRT EFIS or an MGL EFIS or something. You're up and flying. You have an, a functioning mode C and you're happy with the way things are. You, you really don't want to change anything, but you know you have to do something. Then I would recommend go with one of the UAvionics products. Get an echo and uh, and add a certified GPS onto it. Um, do one of the wingtip or tail mount uh, 978 ones, and that, that's probably the simplest, easiest, least expensive ways. So anywhere from a thousand to around eighteen hundred to add those bits on, uh, especially if everything is functioning well and you're happy with it. If you go with the the echo model uh, as opposed to one of the wingtip or tail mount units, you do get Wi-Fi and you get a hardwired connection back into your EFIS. So again, it, it's easy to share that information that you're already getting anyway. If you go with the one of the, the wingtip or tail mount units, you're going to have that Wi-Fi connection so you can display it on your iPad, but there's no way to feed that easily back into your EFIS. So that might be how you decide to, which model you sort out there. With the Dynon, I can do both. Not only does it display on the EFIS for the Dynon, but there's also a, a Wi-Fi dongle that plugs into the back of the Skyview that will transmit it to uh, basically any number of uh, portable devices as well. And I, I typically fly with an iPad mini as well as a secondary display. And, yeah, I agree with uh, Gary on that. <clears throat> I wouldn't necessarily make my decision based upon my EFIS. I would, uh, uh, especially if you're, you're using uh, ForeFlight or uh, FlyQ as your primary navigation, device like I do, um, it doesn't really matter what the EFIS thinks. Uh, you could choose any solution that will feed that that guy. And I actually use a Stratix, um, you know, one of those home-built off Amazon uh, ADSB in solution. And it talks to my iPad, and it's completely independent of my EFIS. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Extra backup redundancy. And actually, I've used that redundancy. My Skyview also brings ADS-B in. Um, it has a bit of a problem with uh, broadcasting my GPS position, and so it drops me out frequently. But uh, So that's why I bought the Stratex just as a backup, and I ended up using it more. Uh, um, and But when the Stratex didn't work because the cable was uh, funky, um, my, uh, was my backup. Yeah, but overall, you know, I think, you know, although we're only re we're mandated to uh, have ADSB out, you know, everybody, I would encourage you to find some way uh, to get the ADSB in. 
because that's really what you're gonna you're that's really what you're paying your money for and you're getting the information whether it's weather related products and they're just getting ready to release a whole other subset of, of aviation weather database products that's going to be coming uh you know online into our cockpit too here in the next couple of months as well so we'll get traffic and an enormous amount of weather and uh, for those of us who like to scud across country cross country it's really really nice to have Okay, um, as I kind of think through the, the common scenarios, the, the next one that comes up is you're flying a simple panel. You've got steam gauges. Maybe it's just a, a really, really basic EFIS, uh, an old, old EFIS, but you do have a functioning Mode C transponder, and you don't really want to pull that thing out to buy a new Mode S or something like that. So again, the this, the UAvionics solutions, the tail of the Sky Beacon. You could use the Echo, although uh, it may not give you any more functionality than just the, the wingtip mount version. The other thing you could do is you could go with that Garmin inline unit, the GDL82, and then you would just insert that somewhere in line to your Mode C feed line, uh, wire it up, and then that will give you your ADSB out piggybacking on that Mode C. So those are the two solutions I would look at there, either the wingtip mount or the GDL82 and, and put it in line. The only thing I noticed about the wingtip mount one, it is basically just a single nav light. You know, many of us in the Sonics, we and actually even my Zenith, I use an, an, an encompassing uh, wingtip position light, which not only gives me my strobe, my nav lights, but it also gives you uh, that that white rear-facing nav light that you need for nighttime as well. And I don't believe the Sky Beacon will let you do that. So that would require you thinking ahead and making sure you can get the white position light on your tail if you do decide to fly, you know, after uh, sunset or nighttime hours. Right. And, and that's why I think the tail beacon is actually going to be more popular is because it avoids all those issues. Yeah. You won't have to mess with your wingtip lights. You'll just slap the tail beacon on and call it good. Yeah. It could be just one of those things you get the, all the lights in and figure out, oh, gosh, I don't have a white tail light. So. Right. Right. Okay. And the last situation that I think some people come out to is – um they they don't have a transponder of any sort. So, again, your options would be to buy an old school Mode C, you know, shop eBay or buy a new one or whatever. Maybe you could buy one from a friend who's upgrading for a couple hundred bucks, slap on one of those other add-on units to it, and your total price might be a hundred bucks for your Mode C and 1500 for one of these UAvionics or, or Garmin-type products. And that might be a solution. Or... You're already into it now for $1,500 or $1,800, or you go like we, we recommended earlier and you say, well, I'm not going to do that. That's a Band-Aid solution. I'm just going to buy that Trig 22 and uh, and get everything in the bundle for $2,700 and be done with it forever. And that's probably the smarter, better solution. Jeff, I probably think there's probably not much more than about $500 difference between the two, would you say? Yeah, I think that's probably about right. And and if you factor in the uh, uh, the FAA rebate, well, that's already re- replaced that. Right. If you've never broadcasted it, take advantage of it. Go. Right. Twenty one hundred yeah, bucks. The, the Trig solution. You got it. Yeah. Now there are other um, all in one sort of mode S solutions you might look at. I think the Trig is the easiest bundled solution. But you could go get a Garmin GTX. They make the three thirty five. That's about three grand. Um, I think that they're offering some rebates on that. You could get uh, an Aparo 
Stratus for about the same price, about 2800 uh, or a Dynon or whatever. So there, there are other solutions. But I think that's kind of the point is if you're starting from scratch, it's going to cost you at least a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars just to just to get something together. Why not just go ahead and just go to the Modes and just be done with it? And that's kind of what I want people to think about. And that's I, I went through that whole evaluation um, primarily when I was done in Antarctica because there's nothing else to do. Um, was to evaluate what are the the real solutions. The trig was a little cheaper, but the the thing that pushed me towards that I love the the idea of the remote head. Um, because the panel space behind uh, Sonics is is not great, and I wanted to be able to put it on the floor or on the sidewall or something, and just have the little remote head um, on the panel to control it. Yeah, even my Zenith, I got a pretty expansive panel, uh, but all of the Dynon stuff is is remote controlled, either through the EFIS itself or some little tiny sub panels. Uh, so I basically have, you know, electronics scattered all over the place, but almost none of it is hanging on my panel. And on my Sonics, Gary, I do the same thing. I mount the remote transponder back behind the baggage compartment, and I have a really, really short feed line, and the transponder antenna is right below it in the belly skin. So I just have a couple of control cables that go from the EFIS to the to the back, and everything else is mounted in the back where it's out of the way. And that short antenna run gives you excellent uh, transmission and receptions. Yep. Yeah, remote transponders, I think, are, are the way that we're going to be going uh, largely from this point out. Yeah, my comm radio is remote, transponder is remote, ADSB is remote, everything's remote. Yeah, the new MGL uh, comm transmitters are all remote head, too. So there, there's one other thing which I want to just throw out there to kind of round this out. And that is technology is still rapidly improving. And although we kind of have hit a plateau as we approach the deadline, there are literally hundreds of thousands, millions of drones that at some point are going to be required to transmit some type of ADSB-like signal. Whether that's exactly what, what the manned aircraft are doing or that's something that is a little bit different, it's, it's only a matter of a couple of years before that is absolutely going to take effect. So that is going to continue to push the technology to smaller, lighter, miniaturized solutions. So in a couple of years, maybe these things are going to be the old clunky, uh, you know, V1 versions of all these products, and the super miniaturization is going to be what everybody wants. So that may be a viable way forward. If you don't need it, maybe wait a year or two and just see what happens. All right, guys, uh, what are, uh, do we miss anything or, or are we ready to kind of wrap this thing up? No, I think we cover well pretty well. Uh, again, in essence, I'm overall in favor of the ADSB, especially if you can find some way to plug in the ADSB in, uh, because that's the real sweet point of this whole, whole affair. Yeah, and I guess if, if that's um, the, the biggest advantage, uh, that's a good case for don't wait. Uh, go get one of those $100 build-it-yourself in receivers and start taking advantage of the free traffic and weather that's out there. It may not be a complete and perfect solution, but it'll at least get you a, a taste of what's out there. Sure. Well, well Jeff. Rise the situation. I, I uh, you know, I tow a pawn in a Pawnee for my gladder club, and of course it it has ADSB out, believe it or not. Um, but I put my little Stratex 
uh, on a, it's got Velcro and I just snap it on the panel of, uh, above me. It's got a little battery and my iPhone and I can see traffic. Uh, all those Cirrus drivers with their heads down in the cockpits, I can uh, tow my planes around them. Right. Well, you got to remember, though, guys, really be careful, though. Now, this traffic we talk a lot about, uh, but it's not universal. You're only going to see traffic if they're broadcasting into the system. Uh, so there's still a lot of stuff out there that's going to be stealthy. So do keep your eyes outside. Oh, yeah, it's definitely if you have it, it's not everybody. Um, especially if they're not, if you're outside the mode C, which we are towing, um, uh, we don't see everybody, but, uh, we'll see a, you know, a ghost come across underneath us and it's like, wow, he's not on my, my fish finder. No, they won't be for quite a while. They may never be. All right. Well, Mike, um, any final thoughts on the ADSB topic? Uh, no, I think you've pretty well covered it. Uh, you know, like I say, I'm probably going to be doing it mainly just, just safety so people can see me, <laughs> not, you know, cause I can see them most of the time, uh, with the, uh, ADSB in, but, uh, that's, that's all, all I really have to add. Yeah. Cause we know how you fly, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> just don't tell the FAA. Okay. <laughs> Now, Mike is our real sonic resident expert here for test flying these things. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, let's get back one more time to this Reclaw thing. This was the 33rd annual fly-in. Uh, Mr. Mason, I think, is getting a little bit long on the tooth. I'm sure he wouldn't object to be saying that. I spent quite a bit of time talking to him this, this past uh, this month at the fly-in. Interesting guy. A lot of stories, of course. Um, but we don't know how much longer it's going to really be going, you know, unless it gets deeded over to someone else who picks up the torch and carries on. So if you have a chance to get down there, um, I, again, I recommend everybody give it a shot. Try to get down there and try to get in the fray. Uh, even if you don't want to do some of the mad dash in, in the pattern, if you can at least get down there and park. Uh, it's just a hoot of a hillbilly redneck flying. That's all I can say in the most kindest and fondest manner. It's just the most fun you can have doing nothing in aviation it's on my calendar i will be there and i'll be there of course wouldn't miss it all right got a couple of uh, final concluding thoughts here i want to give a quick report on how the firewall forward seminar went it actually turned out really really good had six people come there were several others that were that were registered but for various reasons, uh, ultimately did not make it. We uh, conducted the class here in the Kansas City area at my local EAA chapter. Bob Micah brought his airplane over, and we used that as a hands-on display. Gus Schlegel also had his airplane in there, although we didn't spend a lot of time peeking under the hood of, of Gus's airplane. A day and a half went by really, really fast. We had... Six topics with about an hour and a half set aside for discussion of each topics. And it was all the things that you see on the website. Electrical system design, fuel system, uh, cooling theory, and, and how to do the cowling and the baffling. And what we found is that it took quite a bit of time just to kind of lay the groundwork and then really get into all those little details. Uh, just great discussion. We ended up kind of blowing through most of the breaks and ended up having lunch right there. And uh, continuing to talk through lunch, and then even ran a little bit late on the first day, and 
ended up probably rather than wrapping up at four, I think we probably wrapped up around five. And then the group went out for dinner that night and just had a, a good kind of laid back conversation over dinner. On Sunday, we were back in the hangar again. Uh, I got there early and people showed up pretty much the same time I did. So we, we cheated a little bit and added a little bit of discussion to, to kind of catch us up to where we should have been. And wrapped up with more hands-on out in the hangar looking at Bob Micah's airplane and just really kind of pulled the threads on on what are those common mistakes and, and how do we take what we know and create a really good, successful engine installation. So we're going to be doing this again. I have started a survey on the website, and if you go to sonicsflight.com, you can find that survey. And it basically just says how many people think they might be wanting to come to one of these, where should we do it, when should we do it, are there additional topics that are not on the syllabus that you think ought to be on there. So if you're interested, go to the survey, give us a little bit of feedback as we kind of zero in. Probably the next one is likely to be either back here again in Kansas City in the spring or possibly out there with John and Gary uh, out your way. And um, and we'll look at doing something like that. Um, so give me a little bit of feedback and we'll zero in. Special thanks go out to Bob Micah again. Great job. He, uh, he was there the entire time, provided some additional commentary, and uh, just a great guy to talk about his own experiences in building his airplane. And I also want to thank Jem, who is uh, building a Jabru 3300-powered Sonics in England. So he gets the award for the furthest travel. He brought his longtime friend and chief riveter with him, and the two of them uh, had a nice visit with us and some of the discussion she was not particularly interested in, but we did have a, a good talk uh, during the break, and so it's real nice to meet the two of them. So thanks, Jim, for coming out and making the trip, and uh, I hope you are hard at work buttoning up that Jabiru and getting it ready to fly. All right, the last thing I want to talk about is kind of a follow-up to our transition training syllabus. So... We have completed this effort. The finalized transition training syllabus is on the Sonics Builders and Pilots Foundation website. You can find it there. And I have continued some of these offline discussions with Aviation Insurance Resources and Falcon Insurance. And it's a little hit or miss depending on which underwriter you're talking about. But both of these organizations they go and they shop the market to multiple underwriters. So don't necessarily take one no as the final answer. They both have people who are very supportive of the transition training syllabus and will work with you. So I encourage you to reach out to either one of those, to AIR or to Falcon. And they can take all your details and they can go back to those different underwriters and find you the best deal possible. Now, what is that going to be? Well, probably, and again, this is very dependent on, on the individual circumstances, probably what that's going to be is the underwriter is going to accept completion of the transition training syllabus instead of logged dual instruction with the CFI in Asonics. You're still going to have to get dual. It'll be in one of these other airplanes that we talk about in the syllabus. And you're likely going to have to have perhaps an hour or two 
log in a Sonic. So that's where you need to go make a friend and go fly with them, right seat, and get some PIC time as the final part of the familiarization. But still, it's a huge step up from uh, absolute firm requirement to get dual in a Sonics because we know how hard that is. Now, there are some cases where even this may not be able to help, and you're just going to have to talk with uh, these agents and see where it takes you. In general, the hardest cases, what they told me, is that older pilots, older being over 70, uh, very low-time pilots, uh, or no tailwheel time, period, but you're trying to insure a tailwheel airplane. It would be much better off to go get your tailwheel endorsement in a Champ or a Citabria or whatever you can find locally before you even make that first call. Then you can come back and say, here's my starting credentials. And it's one less thing you have to negotiate because you're going to have to get your tailwheel endorsement. You're not going to get it as part of the transition training syllabus, period. And all it's going to do is just burn up one of those negotiating chips right off the bat. So don't do that. Go get it ahead of time. Don't even call them until that piece is done. So that's the uh, the report on the transition training syllabus. Uh, I know there are several people who are going through this right now, and I'm waiting for their feedback. Uh, I'm very encouraged that this is going to help. And again, it's not a perfect solution, but it is a much better place than where we were six months ago. All right, guys. Well, I think that will do it for this episode. Uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts and kind of running us through your own individual solutions. I hope this clarifies the pros and cons of any one of these particular approaches. And Gary, I think you hit it on the on the head. There are sort of band-aid approaches that if the price is absolutely the, the driving factor, you can get into it for $1,000. But it's really not that much more to try to step it up and get a more deluxe long-term solution. And so before you spend that 1000 or 1500 really at least give it some serious thought about maybe uh, going up a notch and, and getting to that next one. It may not be the right solution for everybody, but I think you ought to at least consider it before you pull the trigger. Well, this episode will be on the web. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 47. Our next episode... We have a couple of things that are coming together, and I hope that we're going to be talking with EarthX batteries. So uh, that should be a real interesting discussion. We just got to get the timing worked out, hopefully in time for Christmas, because uh, you never know. Maybe you need to drop some hints about having a nice EarthX battery uh, underneath the tree. You can listen to the podcast directly off the website. You can subscribe to Sonic's Flight through iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And if you have something on your mind, send us a, an email. You can send that off of the website or directly to feedback at sonicsflight.com. So once again, John, Mike, Gary, thanks for hanging in here. And um, as we kind of get into the, the holiday season, hopefully the weather will have at least a handful of breaks to get out there and fly. I know I'm kind of stuck on the ground right now, but... Uh, I'm waiting for that good flying day. I'm starting to get the jitters again. So hopefully uh, you guys are having better luck than I am. Well, I know I did. Weather was forecast to be pretty yucky here this weekend, but as weather forecasts go around here, they're not much use for anything. And actually, I got several good hours of flying in today. Took my uh, new Zenith up along the Continental Divide of the Rocky Mountains and got back to play in there and see some gorgeous, beautiful snow-capped mountains. It was really a pretty sight. Yeah, I got up myself. Um, 
but uh, I had taken the heater off my Sonics for uh, the cabin heat, and at 15 degrees at 10,000 feet, I didn't last long. I had to come back home. My toes were toasty, bud. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the brandy, Gary. I don't know that we can pull that off, though. <clears throat> well, you know how it goes. <laughs> Got to use those 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 bottle holders up front for something. <laughs> yeah, you have more cup holders in your plane than any Vaughn I've ever seen. And I'm damn proud of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Good talking to you again. And I uh, look forward to hitting you guys up on, on our next podcast. Thanks, everybody, and, and fly safe. Good night, buds. Good night. All right, good night. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.